And welcome to For What It's Earth, the podcast that has a little look at all things nature, climate change, sustainability, and asks, is there anything that you and I can do to help save the planet just a little bit? My name's Emma. I'm Lloyd, and soaring into the guest seat this week is uh, the lovely Tom Morath, who we've wanted for quite a while on the podcast. He's a bird of prey expert, fundraising events manager at the Hawk Conservancy, and also the host of Nature's a Hoop podcast, a competitor podcast. We won't discuss too much because we want you to listen to this one. Um, <laughs> and all around a good egg. Hiya, Tom. How are you doing? Hello. I'm very well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. I have to say, this is like a, a big big fanboy moment for me because I've been following your podcast as well for a long time so like I'm here now oh. I've made it in life this is it <laughs> this is so meta I love yeah. it this is so it's so nice well you're just another fellow lovely person who knows a lot about nature and loves talking about it it's always really nice to chat to other people with a similar kind of mind so yeah I'm, and I'm also really excited to learn more about birds of prey because we were saying just before yeah. we turned our microphones on like we haven't really covered it at all and we're like 70 no. episodes down so I'm I'm here for all of the bird of prey facts because pretty much my experiences with birds of prey is, oh my God, that's really cool. I can see a buzzard and I can see red kites and I know which yeah. parts of the motorway I'm going to see red kites on. And I once <laughs> saw um, a sparrow hawk in my garden and nearly fell off my chair with excitement. But that is, yes. you know, that's pretty much as far as my yeah. bird of prey knowledge goes. I can identify a winged animal. <laughs> that one is flight. That one, it's that one avian. <laughs> avian. That's the word. We couldn't even get the word avian out. <laughs> well, we're off to a good start. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen. Um, you you know the format. Then you know the first question, Tom. I'm going to put you on the spot straight away. What one good mm. thing have you done for the planet this week? Uh, well, I guess it's not this week. It's been kind of ongoing, but um, certainly this week we've made use at home of. Uh, Facebook marketplace nice. for secondhand goods because um, my partner and I are expecting in the new year very very excitedly and obviously with a new child comes a whole plethora of new things that one has to buy but all of the new things to you don't have to be first time use we've found so we've saved money and hopefully saved the planet a little bit as well by kind of finding other people around us who have kind of done what we're doing now a year ago two years ago and are kind of wanting to have a bit of a clear out. So yeah, most of our baby stuff is like second or third hand. So Love it. I'm, I'm quite proud of that one. That's You're talking my language. This is, <laughs> this is one of the reasons I really wanted to get you two together before Christmas because Lloyd's in the same boat and I just thought, yeah, oh, it's so exciting. Yeah, so you yeah. guys can share all of these exciting moments. <laughs> yeah. Have you done similar thing, Lloyd? Have yeah, you... I've been banging on about it before. Um, so don't, don't want to bore the wristers too much with, with, with my uh, thrift. But the yeah, we got our pram for oh, like a, a less than a third of the price that you normally yeah. get it for because uh, we got it through um, marketplace again. Emma very kindly found in a charity shop a baby carrier, which was the exact baby carrier we wanted, but it was thirty quid. Yeah. Was How used... smug do you feel when that happens? Oh, oh, it's like a little oh. A, a little, little tingle. Win. It's so good. <laughs> well, it sounds like you've both done in- incredibly well, and you know. January is going to be a great time of year for new eco babies. Absolutely. What about you, Lloyd? What's yours this week? Well, I was going to say, speaking of which, we had an email from someone, didn't we, who suggested 
um, yes. which I completely forgot about until just this moment, um, who suggested that we use a secondhand baby toy service. Um, so I'll let Emma very quickly find that. <laughs> let me find it. It was the loveliest response. It was fantastic. And not just because uh, they were very nice about the podcast, but because there were some good tips on there. Yeah. Let, me, let me scroll past seven paragraphs of uh, telling us how wonderful we are. No, um, not really. But Abigail emailed <laughs> us in and she was very, very kind about the podcast and, and that we've hopefully been useful to her. Um, and she mentioned, so her one good things this week uh, included making her yearly cranberry chili chutney for Christmas, which sounds amazing. And I've asked for the Ooh. recipe. So Abigail, email me back when you get a chance. Um, and she's been wrapping all of her Christmas presents in hessian and sisal rope, which is all compostable. So very nice. But yes, yeah, she did. She mentioned to you, she said, Lloyd, I've heard you're having a baby. Congratulations. If you're looking to keep the toy waste down, she recommends Whirly. That's with a, starting with a W and ending with an I, which is kind of like a toy rental service. So you don't necessarily have to purchase these things to live forever in your kind of understairs cupboard. You can have a kind of an exciting roster of things coming and going for your, for your kid. So worthy. Sounds perfect. You'll have to check that out. Yeah. Thanks so much. On it. As for my one good thing, um, it's kind of an old good thing, but reborn because we've we finally got a kitchen again. Uh, hallelujah. Tom, we had a, a hole in the ground for a couple of months. And then after that, we had um, a filled in hole. And, right. And now, now we've had a kitchen for about six weeks. Um, and now I'm finally ready because everything's plugged back in to, to get back on, on the small bandwagon. <gasps> Lovely. Which uh, S S M O L. I'm sure a lot of listeners know of these already, but they're subscription service, uh, dishwasher tabs, that sort of thing that you can you can get. Um, so I'm very excited to to get my new one back through the post and not have that panic every uh, every month of I can't do the dishes. We haven't got any tablets. I don't want to go outside because it's raining, and I live on a hill. I have to come back up the hill. So <laughs> get the postman to do it for me. Very nice. What about you, Emma? What's your I, I had a chat with my good friend Hannah this morning who sent me a, a copy of a text that she'd sent her fiancé um, when she'd found some plastic in the bin and not in the recycling bin. And she was like, absolutely not. I can't believe he's doing this. And I said, well, it's all well. I love that you're being the recycling police. Fantastic. Keep this up. Um, but have you thought about maybe looking at where you're banking? Because it's all well and good saving one piece of plastic from the bin. But actually, if you are if you are genuinely concerned, let's have a little chat about um, I pointed to her in the direction of Triodos, the bank that I've started moving to. Well, I moved to. Oh, I was there. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Nice Tom. one. We're all moving to making our money passively um, invest in good green things. Yeah. So she hasn't done it yet, but I feel like I've sown the seed and, um, you know, maybe, maybe that'll be a big change for her. And that's kind of what the podcast tries to do. Uh, so it's a bit of a tenuous one, but that is my one good thing. Well, that, that goes back to our money episode, doesn't it? Where actually. Being responsible with your pension and where you bank can have 10, 100 times the impact of, yeah. of a lot of the smaller actions. So it's it's a fantastically proactive thing to do. Yeah, and she hadn't she hadn't made that connection yet. She hadn't heard about that before. So it was one of those wonderful moments where you see like a light bulb and you're like, oh my gosh, I can have an amazing impact by just, you know, doing one little bit of paper, paperwork. So that was pretty cool. But we've had some um we've had some in from listeners as well on Instagram this week. So I've divvied them up and we can all give them shout outs. Why don't Tom, you start us off with one of yours? Yeah, we've got one here from uh, Libby, who says that she cycled to her blood donation appointment. Now, that's like doubly good deeds, isn't oh it? Word. It is, isn't it? Cycling to a blood donation appointment. That's fantastic. Yeah, low-carbon, life-saving. Libby, I really hope you 
stocked up on sugar before you cycle back. Yeah, yeah. Need a good Lucozade or something after that, don't you? Yeah. She said they gave her two club mint bars and she thought that ratio oh. of um, blood to <laughs> blood to chocolate bar was quite good. Oh, that, that takes me back to school. So well done, Libby. <laughs> Finding a little club bar in your lunchbox. Eat I all the chocolate off first. I didn't, yeah, I didn't know they were still, I didn't know they, they even still made those. Yeah, brilliant. What about you, Lloyd? Uh, Laura, um, you asked for experience gifts um, for Christmas rather than general stuff, physical stuff. And you also signed a petition against further coal mining in Australia. Now, those are two good things. We love it. First of all, experience gifts. Yes, fantastic. Um, the, the only thing is I, I've, I've been doing this as well the last couple of years, like more experience gifts. COVID did kind of derail that a little bit because it meant mm. everything I bought was <laughs> we still haven't gone to. But still good. Love it. And also, yeah, you said about the um, petition against coal mining in Australia. That's something that has been flagged to us a couple of times by a few listeners. So I think Emma will take a little little further dig into that. Yeah, well, I think she had a listen to our episode with Eva Orner, who directed Burning, the documentary about climate change and and the impact of a lot of the coal mining in Australia. And she said that really resonated her. So that's great. That's a a very tangible tick of we can see... We've hopefully done something useful, imparting some good knowledge, and she's she's taken that into action. So superb. Okay, next up, a guy who didn't actually leave his name uh, said that he'd stopped buying aluminium foil, and I had to do a little bit of googling. I had to dig around in this one because this hasn't, you know, made it onto my radar. But apparently, the mining process of it um, is basically got lots of problems, as you might expect, with things like water and energy intensive kind of practices, and also quite a lot of pollution associated with it. So. Something I hadn't thought about, but I'll be thinking about more often. And um, make sure you recycle yours as well. Absolutely. It's, quite, it's not always easy to recycle it either, is it? Because you have to have a certain size piece of aluminium foil to, yeah, you have to, to have it. Yeah, you club it together until you've got like an yeah. orange shape of it. And if it's kind of got any food residue on it as well, it's, um, it, it's it kind of easy. ruins it. So yeah, it's, it's tricky. You're right, you're right, Tom. But one, one that I hadn't thought about. So that was quite yeah. cool. And that comes back to our old favourite, beeswax wraps. Yeah, yes. I suppose. Use those where possible. Um, I also had one in from Josie who said that they invested in a community energy group. How cool is Great. that? Putting your money behind your values. We're a big fan of that. Love that. Yeah. That's wonderful. Um, Kate, you skipped takeaways and you've been avoiding buying vegetables in plastic when you're out doing your shopping. Love it. It's getting... Surprisingly, I'm finding it even harder. I don't know why. The last couple of months i'm always finding it harder to buy certain vegetables in plastic i don't know if there's like covid shortages of some vegetables Mm. or something i swear i used to have the option in many supermarkets between plastic i wonder if it's the power of trying to understand you know people trying to make that change and everyone's like well actually i don't want the plastic ones ones in plastic i want the ones out of plastic and they go really quickly because i've had exactly (gasps) the same problem arriving in the supermarket you think I'm going to pick the carrots with no bag on. Carrots? Yes, that was the exact one I had in Tesco the other week. <laughs> oh. I can only get bagged carrots. Well, that's good. I, re- I really hope, Tom, that you're right. And that is exactly the motivation behind it. I like that. I'm going to lean into that, whether it's right or not. I, I would like that to be the case. Very yeah, nice. Yeah, I, I ended up picking up a bag of wonky carrots. It's just a shame yes. those weren't also unwrapped. You sort of feel like... Mm. Oh, it's half, it is, that's still a half point though, isn't it? Yeah. It's gone for the uglies and they often end up in landfill or in food waste. So that's still still a good one. Almost. And um, okay, last one from a listener. So Cal sold sustainably UK-grown Christmas trees this year to help raise money for conservation projects in the Peak District. Tick, Amazing. Tick, 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 tick. Very nice. cool. And on, well and on theme because we're recording it... Um, just a few days, well, nay, what a week 
before Christmas. So nicely done. Yeah. Um, and then if, if we release this after Christmas, then we'll just cut that section out and uh, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll sound much more. <laughs> Let's have a chat about Birds of Prey then, because Tom, as much as we love you here to join as host, you're actually here as expert and we're here to learn from you. Wow, that puts the pressure on. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> that word, expert. Is like, <laughs> so, yeah. so birds, what are they? Yeah. Tell us about our avian <laughs> You know those feathered friends. things that you see sometimes? Like, Go on, why, um, why are birds of prey so cool? Oh God, there's so many reasons. I mean, f- for me, my history with birds of prey goes back from like when I was a very, very small child. And, and you were carried off my, by an eagle. <laughs> that was it, yes. And I was actually, I was, I was raised in a brood of barn owls. A white-tailed um, sea eagle was reintroduced and instead of taking the lambs, it saw a small child named Tom. <laughs> that's it, yeah, and thought, that's what I want. Um, no, but I did, we used to see them uh, a lot when we're kind of out on kind of countryside walks and that's really where my love of wildlife developed from. But it was always birds of prey that seemed to to capture me. And I think it depends on the different species that you look at. But I mean, there, to me, there isn't any better sight in the world than driving along a country lane, especially on a late summer's evening, and just watching a, a barn owl kind of quarter over the oh, the oh, meadows or the, or the fields on the side of the road. I mean, that is just a, mm. a beautiful, beautiful sight in anybody's book, isn't it? And then you know, I, I don't live too far away from um, Salisbury and the cathedral in Salisbury. And we regularly see the, the peregrine falcon pair raising their youngsters and raising their chicks um, during the summer. And again, just to see that kind of king of the sky powering in towards that, um, towards that spire, it just sets your hairs on edge. It's something primeval, I think. They are, they are ultimate predators and they can kind of do something that we've never got any hope to really achieve. We've tried, haven't we? We've tried to achieve flight in the same way that a bird does. <laughs> but it, we can't really achieve what they do. And especially those that are at those outer end of those spectrums, a barn owl that flies so slowly, they almost stall in the air as they quarter mm. the, the fields of their habitat. And a peregrine that is the world's fastest living creature topping out at upwards of 200 miles an hour in a dive. Like, wow. there's such variation, but equally astounding and, and equally beautiful to watch as well. So, yeah, what's good about birds of prey? Well, what what isn't what isn't good about birds of prey? Oh, I like yeah. that. So turn, if, turn that around. <laughs> if the peregrine falcon's the fastest in a dive, what's the fastest bird in a straight line? Well, that's a really good question. I mean, there's some people that will say it's um, some of the larger eagles. So you kind of think of like a golden eagle or something as being quite a slow kind of lumbering bird. But, you know, they... they um, they hunt some pretty fast animals out in the wild, mountain hares and rabbits. And, you know, obviously in a straight line, they can run pretty quickly. So, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be flying pretty fast. In the UK, we're very lucky to see sparrowhawks and goshawks mm. as well. Um, I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to see either of those species, but the goshawk especially, um, they, they're so elusive, hard to spot. And part of the reason is because they're so quick and, and not just fast in open space, but they're a, a woodland dwelling species of raptor on the whole so they're fast and like super maneuverable so it's kind of their speed of turning corners and avoiding obviously colliding with branches within that home so um yeah i don't think i could definitively say from my own knowledge exactly who the who the fastest in level flight is but yeah goshawk or a or a golden eagle's got to be a a fair contender i think they can all all outrun me anyway so yeah absolutely (laughs) it's safe to say it's safe to say that we are we are rubbish, aren't we, compared to these birds? <laughs> <laughs> well, considering we're, you know, getting rid of their habitats and all sorts. Yeah. 
you yeah, can, you that can also, be towards we are a bit rubbish. But then there are organisations such as yourselves working very hard to make sure that we've got a better future for our, our very cool birds of prey. So let's let's start with a little kind of ecology. What what is the role of a bird of prey in an ecosystem beyond, you know, all of us in a field staring at them because they're gorgeous and amazing? Yeah, yeah. Well, their role is as the the apex predator, really. So they sit right at the top of that pyramid and right at the top of the food chain. So I, I guess for us studying them, they're a really good indicator of how healthy an ecosystem is. If a, if the top predator within that ecosystem is doing well, then chances are that they're you know, there's a fairly healthy food chain underneath them. Um, you know, so they're, they're going to be obviously catching the things that are further down that chain, helping to keep numbers of those uh, other animals in check um, and essentially kind of keeping everything on the straight and narrow, really. And what happens when um, we start to lose our birds of prey? Chaos? Yeah, well, potentially, yeah. I mean, you know, we, we already know that... Um, you know, certain species, especially ones that you wouldn't ordinarily think of straight away when you think birds of prey. So um, vultures are a, a, a clear example of what can be a possible outcome of, of losing a large avian predator come scavenger from an ecosystem. We see, so, so vultures are a species that we work really closely with overseas and um, their decline has been absolutely staggering particularly in Asia and in Africa where most species of, of vultures are now threatened endangered critically endangered and they provide such a, a vital role not as a predator like a, like most species of eagles or falcons or owls are but actually as a scavenger that comes in and eats all of the the dead carcasses the other animals that have either lost the test of life or the bits of bobs left behind by other apex predators and of course, you know, if that uh, if that meat is not eaten, there's that potential of of a gathering of of disease and a gathering of other animals that pass on disease from one another. So, you know, certainly there are some birds like that that which which we hold as being vitally important, uh, a kind of keystone species to the ecosystems that they live in. So we we really need to keep those populations alive wherever we possibly can. I mean, how how depleted are our birds of prey? populations in the UK because I know in the UK in general we're very nature biodiversity depleted in terms of birds mm. of prey are we doing badly um, it depends on the species you look at really so I think probably most of our listeners can hopefully say that they've seen a red kite certainly in the last five to ten years we have been steadily hearing reports from people who come to visit us or just people I talk to generally that they're seeing more and more red kites. And actually that's a, uh, a study and a work that we've done here is to understand exactly what the population of those birds is like. And um, from that study beginning in 2011, we've kind of seen a steady increase in those birds, um, both buzzards and red kites. Um, and that's kind of now plateauing and we're not 100% sure why that might be. There might be issues with persecution, there might be issues with uh, secondhand poisoning or habitat loss, but that number's slowly starting to plateau now, but at greater numbers than we've been used to in the last decade or two. Flip that on its head with things like sparrowhawks. They're now an, an amber-listed species, a species that is in decline in the UK. Um, and again, it's not 100% clear why that might be, but you know, we're certainly seeing, as you said, a, a areas where our, our wild is getting smaller and smaller and species like that that are you know specialist small bird hunters really as our bird numbers start to decrease our kind of songbird population decreases chances are we're going to start to see a decrease in the populations of these these predators as well so 
Some species are doing okay. Some species are doing not quite so well. Um, it's clear that they all need some level of protection and some championing, um, and certainly as many people to know as much about them as possible, really, because it's it's through that that we that we gain that protection. We always kind of look after the things we love and associate with more than anything else, mm, don't we? That is the that is one of the kind of big pitfalls of conservation working in the sector, isn't it? Um, trying to make species. I don't know, like have a public image and have public interest yeah. in order to get the funding to help them is, it can be a struggle. It's it's super hard to get people to fall in love with a, an endangered species of fungi, isn't it? By yeah, comparison but I can't, to, I can't uh, fathom that because no, it's so I mean, cool. <laughs> it's super cool, but, you know, you know, put a face of a, a tiger cub or a panda on something and it's just instantly more lovable and likable mm. and it's much more emotive um, and it, it's finding the right way to communicate that often that... that to draw people into to the conversation and you know get people caring about these things. So who are who are the sexy birds of the conservation world? Because I think a red kite is absolutely stunning, but is that the cliche? I guess so. I mean certainly with things like the reintroduction of the white-tailed sea eagle both in Scotland and now in the south of England, they are very much a, a flagship bird. You know, they're such an iconic uh species that they've gained a great deal of support just by the fact that they're these great big strong eagles and who does not want to see uh, what has been dubbed as the flying barn door. They're just so wow, enormous. Two metre wingspan. They're just massive. They're, they're, they're our largest native species of bird of prey. Yeah. Um, and who does not want to see that on, on a daily basis? It's it's stunning. So, you know, it helps things like ecotourism. It helps to kind of boost that conversation around conservation in general. Whereas, you know, on the opposite end of things, as I mentioned before, in the very, very first stages of trying to get people to fall in love with a vulture, mm. a, an animal that eats dead things, you know, we liken it to the politicians we don't like. Totally unfair <laughs> on the vultures, I will just say. Um, <laughs> um, it's hard to get people to fall in love with something that, you know, our national psyche is that they're horrible, dirty and disgusting. And it, it needs a bit of education and a little bit of, little bit of TLC to, to change that, I think. So how do these reintroduction programs work? So you mentioned white-tailed sea eagles. They've been reintroduced. Mm. I'm, I'm going to take a stab. Was that on the Isle of Wight? It was, yeah. yeah. And red kites have also been reintroduced, haven't they? So how how do how do we physically go about trying to boost a population that we're worried about in the UK? What, what does that actually look like? Um, again, depends on the species. And the, one of the most important things that you know, we kind of bang on about a lot is that any conservation that's done with, I think, with any species needs to be research and evidence based, really. So actually understanding whether the needs of that species can be met before reintroducing it back out into the wild. Mm. Because, you know, although uh, a golden eagle traditionally was quite happy living in the, the English countryside, chances are now that we've changed our countryside in England so much that the feasibility of having them back out in the wild is, you know, is could potentially cause problems for them as a species because you're squeezing a species into a very small area that is naturally used to having much, much, much more room. So I think that's the first step is understanding, okay, is it actually possible? Is it going to work or are you potentially um, laying a road of, of threats for that species once again? Also understanding why they declined in the first place. So with uh, a lot of uh, breeding programs where the idea is to breed um, any animal to release back out into the wild, if the threats are still there that cause the decline in the first place, 
obviously that's n- not really mm. setting the the program up for success um so i guess they're, they're the first two steps and then sometimes birds are um just encouraged back into that um into that ecosystem into that habitat and sometimes captive birds are re-released to bolster that population give it a bit of a starting point and then it, it kind of grows from there but red kites were one of the first conservation projects that we were we were part of here at the trust and we actually released some birds from our site here Fab. and we overlooked the, uh, what's called the east Chalderton valley here and now we see red kites pretty much every day you know and, and in numbers maybe a dozen or so birds on a daily basis wow. which was Gosh. unthinkable when that project first begun uh, i mean i remember going to uh, to to london zoo and seeing a red kite in a large aviary there and thinking oh my that's incredible there's a red kite really in front of my own eyes and now i'm not going to say they're boring in any way but it's kind of unremarkable <laughs> now and isn't that the kind of aim that's the point when yeah. you reintroduce a species to kind of go oh yeah there's another one yeah <laughs> oh, we, we, we want everything to be boring idea yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, bore oh, yeah. me with my See abundance of, of nature please <laughs> exactly yeah it, it's, it sounds like um almost like a fee barrier is getting landowners for example farmers on board because you're looking to essentially rewild at the same time to give more room more natural environment for these released animals and also yeah. you need to convince farmers especially that these large birds aren't going to carry away their lambs into the sunset definitely yeah absolutely and, and having that kind of community support yeah as you've said is probably the it, one of if not the biggest factor in the success of conservation programs like this with particularly with a large species like like an eagle you know you need everybody to be on board with that not just people who absolutely love them but the people who are skeptical they're likely to be really really useful within that conversation as well because you know we don't want to put any of these animals in harm's way so if we think that there are going to be problems further down the line then we need to kind of address those and think about those hence the need for research and and feasibility studies before we begin anything because you know everybody needs to have a say um and would like active technology help with that? For example, GPS trackers. So if someone comes to you and says, one of my animals was killed, I'm pretty sure it was your eagle. And you can yes. whip out your phone and be like, actually, the tracker says they were five miles away, so it couldn't have been them. Does, does that come into play with your reintroductions? Yeah. So, I mean, it's super important to understand how the how the population behaves within an area as well. So, And this actually came into, um, came into effect in 20... 20 when we had a, a wild white-tailed sea eagle fly above us here at the trust and we were this is incredible how amazing that one of those birds that was released on the isle of Wight just you know a few months before has now made it across to rural hampshire incredible job done close the book in actual fact on further uh, further investigation actually wasn't a bird that had come from the isle of Wight at all it's actually a bird that had come from i think somewhere in northern europe or scandinavia it's flown all that way wow. flying over so you can't always make assumptions about how these birds are yeah. going to behave and what you're going to see and the sort of activity that you're going to see from them. Um, and yeah, I mean, as technology increase, it increases in its um, abilities for us, and particularly with birds, as it gets smaller, because even a white-tailed sea eagle, a huge bird, they're only going to weigh you know three, four, maybe five kilos at a real push. They really? are relatively Gosh. lightweight animals. That's a yes. lightweight barn door. Um, Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So carrying a, a transmitter of some some sort around is, um, you know, obviously it needs to be 
possible and, and safe for them to do. Um, so, you know, when we're working with the birds that we have in our collection here, we sometimes, um, well, we almost always fit them with some sort of uh, tracking device so that we can kind of keep an eye on them. And one of the latest things that we can use to within our research, but also in just day-to-day -day use of keeping tabs on the birds is use a, a GPS transmitter, which is great because we can just get the iPad out and go, well, you know, he's just over the hill over there. Whereas before we were relying on, you know, mostly radio tracking, which is a beep that's louder in one direction than the other. So, you know, technology is is changing and helping us, I think, all the time. And that can only be a, a good thing mm -hmm. for these conservation projects, I think. So can we, since we've got you here, can we dig a little bit into what what some of the issues are that our, our birds of prey species are facing in the UK? Because we've talked some about some great case studies there about where we've been, you know, reintroducing them and supporting their population. But why why are they in trouble in the first place? Again, the the issues that birds of prey face are kind of fairly broad. Um, the main ones that come up regularly are um, habitat loss. Mm -hmm. So areas. A perfect example for the UK is, you know, things like the the barn owl. It's very much a kind of specialist hunter. They don't like hunting really in kind of densely wooded areas. They like to go out into kind of open open fields and meadows, kind of areas that are untouched really are great for things like short-tailed field voles. And when you see those voles active there, you're much more likely to see um, barn owls succeeding. So you lose that sort of habitat, then you're much more likely to lose um, the barn owl who's kind of sits at the top of that pyramid, as we spoke about before. Is um, that why the barn owl is called the barn owl? Because they were found nesting in like farmland properties? Yes, yes. I'm not sure what they were called before the barn, but I guess we weren't <laughs> around to give them a name. <laughs> that white owl that drifts yeah. leisurely over fields. <laughs> Sorry. Thought, Sorry. Thought the crow. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's exactly why. Uh, and I mean, one of the ways that we can help and support them is by working with with landowners and farmers, like get, getting that understanding of what a positive impact barn owls can have. You know, they they feed on rodents, you know, a, a animals that can sometimes cause issues for, you know, various crops and produce. Great, you've got a natural predator right there. Mm. Um, you know, putting up nest boxes, things like that for them are also also really important. And obviously one of the other issues that they, they face is, is persecution um, and, and issues around maybe people not having a hundred percent understanding of what birds of prey are all about or what their capabilities are. Um, red kites seem to get tarnished with that quite a lot. And as we see an increase in red kite numbers, um, we do hear lots of different stories about what red kites are doing to other um, animals within their, uh, the habitats they live in, within their environments that mostly are anecdotal and are kind of difficult to get your head around really because again a red kite looks like a massive bird and it's easy to understand how people may be fearing for the life of their you know dogs and small children because it looks it looks massive in the air <laughs> but actually you know on the whole red kites are scavenger and they do they that doesn't mean they can't catch their own food they can they're they're a they are a predator in their own right but on the whole they're they're catching medium medium-sized rodents and eating a lot of roadkill and other carrion um but it's that sometimes a, a lack of empathy for the species maybe sometimes it's a, a lack of information being communicated but you know people will persecute birds of prey because they just think that they're going to have a negative impact not necessarily because they know they're going to have one um, and um, unfortunately we know that you know crimes in in terms of um, raptor persecution is you know still very very much uh, prevalent particularly in the north of england um 
where we see some you know incredible incredible birds of prey um, it was really sad reading the the RSPB bird crime report mm. that came out in 2019 which you know there's huge numbers of, of raptors certainly huge numbers in our books um, of, of these birds being persecuted shot or poisoned um, sometimes just um, you know just in the wrong place at the wrong time I think and and, and people you know wanting to have their idea of fun of, of shooting an incredible incredible bird um, and we know that you know 2020 for so many of us myself included I spend a lot of time out in the countryside anyway and I'm sure a lot of your listeners will spend a lot of time doing that too and in 2020 wildlife and nature was such a savior for so many of us it gave us that Absolutely. headspace it gave us that breathing space and acted as a, a sanctuary and so it was really particularly disheartening to learn that you know, in, in the spring and summer of 2020, that the, you know, investigations team investigating persecution of wild birds, particularly wild birds of prey, mm. had their busiest season doing that ever oh, during gosh. that time. It's almost like whilst everybody's at home, this is perhaps a good opportunity to kind of kind of do things like that. So, you know, they um, it's, it's sad reading. So still um, a, a lot of attitudes that need changing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And just, just a little bit of thought, you know, so, you know, things like, as you said before, um, rodenticides and even things like spent ammunition, um, you know, mostly contains lead still. And that is an issue for scavenging birds of prey, um, especially buzzards and, and kites. Again, they come down to feed on a carcass. Yeah. They don't know how it's been killed. And if it contains lead, you know, it's quite often um, very, very damaging to their biology and potentially fatal for them. So, yeah, it's just just thinking about the needs of uh, of these birds and yeah understanding them a little bit better i think because i hadn't actually thought about that kind of secondary i'm gonna call it secondary murder because i don't know what the real term is where you're not physically mm. shooting the bird itself but the consequence of shooting something else leads to it having massive problems with ingesting things like lead I hadn't hadn't even thought about that and i guess mm. that must be one of the reasons why it's incredibly hard to follow up on and i guess persecute wildlife crime it, it seems like yeah. a very murky world that we des definitely need to do a podcast on at some point but I have, I don't even know where to start. It's such a big topic. But well, and it very often happens far from, um, you know, houses and chimneys, doesn't it? Where where people are. So actually catching people in the act surely must be one of the hardest things things mm. to do. And like you say, evidence can potentially degrade very very quickly in those sort of scenarios. Yeah. So yeah, very difficult to I try guess to it police. I'm sure the world over, doesn't it? Because uh, you were obviously talking about your great work with with vultures earlier. Um, I remember reading a paper about um, vulture poisonings in um, Southern Asia, um, yeah. where they'd leave out poisoned meat, for example, to, to pick off vultures. Um, yes. Or, I, I can't remember if vultures were the sort of secondary victim of that or not. Yeah, so it's it. kind of twofold, really. So in Asia, the what we called, what was dubbed the Asian vulture crisis came about because of the use of a veterinary drug uh, known as diclofenac. So Diclofenac is like the active ingredient in things like Voltarol. It's an anti-inflammatory and it's used very often to treat uh, cattle for lameness. Um, but it is poisonous to vultures and other, other scavengers, right, okay. particularly other birds of prey. So when cattle was left out in the field for the vultures to eat, which have been fine for thousands of years, mm. you inject um, diclofenac into the system, kills off vultures. We're talking tens of millions of birds over a very short space of time, just Gosh. a few decades. Um, so hence why it was called the, the vulture crisis, yeah. because it's such a crash. The issue with um, deliberate poisonings mostly happens in, in Southern Africa, 
um, with incidents of elephant poaching. So it's everyone knows about elephant poaching. It's like mm. the ivory trade is like the big bad wolf of wildlife crime, isn't it? Mm. Everybody seems to know it. Um, and the issues there is if you are a poacher trying to get away with shooting elephant or removing the tusk, taking that elephant's life, then the last thing you want is like 300 of the world's largest birds of prey flying above your head because oh, right. game guards yeah. learn to follow vultures and then they catch you right. red-handed. And so they poison vultures in the area and then they can carry on doing what they do without being disturbed. So um, again, something else we, we work on to try and provide uh, sorry, yeah, trying to I, I provide response kits for that. Yeah. Made ivory trading even worse. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry. The realities are always um, are always yeah. very sad. But you know, we know there's things that we can do to to help and support. And one of the things we can do is telling people about that. Mm. You know, because so so many people. Why would you think that that's a that's a knock on effect of the ivory trade if you don't know anything about the species yeah. or you, you know it's not something of particular interest? So the more people that know about it, the more momentum we can build behind trying to support these populations as well. Which is obviously a big, you know, big part of my job is to mm. educate people really and tell people about what's happening to these misunderstood and, and less loved birds. Really. And very very cool creatures. Um, Absolutely. What about climate change? The old. Uh, I'm going to just roll that one into the conversation. <laughs> yeah. What about it? What, what about it? Hey, <laughs> that's not. It's not good. Change. I know that much. <laughs> um, I'm sure there's a, there's myriad ways that it's causing problems. But what, in a nutshell, um, is the potential ramifications of a changing climate on our on our bird of prey species? Um, so one of the biggest things we think could be an issue in the future is the changing climate for birds that are. Uh, long distance migrants because they'll ex potentially experience more extreme weather conditions on those migration routes right. and when they get to their destination the uh, expected amounts of uh, prey species may be depleted as a result of the changing seasons these birds rely on this kind of ever ticking clock of the world and when that doesn't run to time it causes problems for the species that are expecting to be able to settle down, build a family and hopefully feel, feed those youngsters when they they hatch. So that's one of the ways that it, it could impact birds of prey. Um, the other way it's likely to impact raptors is those species, again, that are very much specialists. So they live within habitats that are very much reliant on being very much the same for a long period of time, millennia. And uh, species within that habitat have adapted to live with the conditions that comes with the habitat. So an iconic one that I can think of is the snowy owl. You know, a snowy owl lives in Arctic tundra. Mm. It's so cold there that trees do not even grow. There's a few species of lichen and mosses underneath that layer of snow, but otherwise it's pretty barren. And so the choice of things to eat for the snowy owl is pretty small. So you take away the prey items from the snowy owl and you get a decrease in um, in the productivity of, of snowy owls. And we've seen this already happening. So there's a study done in Greenland um, which suggested that an increased rainfall in an area where we expect there to be much more snowfall. Now, usually for owls, we talk about rainfall. We say it's a bad thing because owls waterproofing isn't that great in their feathers. And so a cold year is better for them than a wet year uh -huh. because they, they don't like flying in the rain. A snowy owl has managed to adapt to fly in uh, in snowy blizzards so no problem getting a bit damp for the snowy owl the issue comes when the rain falls on the top of the snow and causes that snow to freeze with a hard outer layer essentially that permafrost 
throughout the, the winter period. And their number one prey item, the lemming, they mm. like to burrow into the snow, underneath the snow, build those network of tunnels. And if they can't do that, they can't have their youngsters and we see a crash in population. And within that study in Greenland, um, we saw a loss of 98% of the productivity of these birds wow. managing to produce youngsters. And that's that's already happened. That's years gone by. The more we see things like this happening, you know, what what does the future look like for species like, you know, the iconic snowy owl? Gosh, I mean, that's a, a similar problem shared by reindeer, did you know? Um, those layers of ice sheets forming in, in layers of snow, they are adapted to be able to crack through, well, snow, in order to scrape yeah. at those lovely lichens at the bottom. But yeah, as you said, if, as soon as rain falls, when it should be snow and it, it forms these layers of ice, it prevents uh, well, another species getting at their target mm. food. Gosh, it's all, it's all bad, isn't it? It's all And it just goes to show there's so many different avenues of attack to try to solve this one problem, which is great, actually, because, you know, if there's a, you know, reindeer conservancy trust somewhere else, they're also trying to fight the same problem. So, yeah. you know, there's opportunities like that where we think, well, you know, how can we work this problem out together? And, you know, trying to understand each other's goals is also, you know, important because, you know, sometimes more minds are greater than one, aren't they? That's a great point. Thank you for uh, giving a little glimmer of, of, of positivity there. I that's, really that's like that. I was important. going down a dark hole. <laughs> yeah. And Lloyd, we're going to have to try and find a reindeer conservancy trust to get on the podcast because I, I would like to know yeah, more absolutely. about reindeer. That would be very cool. Maybe for, for, for next Christmas. Yes, a thematic one. Lovely. Can we chat a little bit about avian flu? Because that's, I think, mm. is something that it, people are going to be seeing and hearing a lot more of in the news um, yeah. in the next couple of months. So can you give us a little background of kind of what's going on? And there are quite a few points and takeaways, aren't there, that the public can do to not yeah. make things worse? Well, I can certainly give you an idea of kind of what how it impacts for us. Mm. I mean, I'm certainly not an avian influenza specialist, but, you know, we, we understand that this is a potentially... Uh, what do, what do we call it when things jump from one animal to another? I've <laughs> just had a blank, sorry. Uh, transmissible? Contagious. Contagious. There we go. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. Um, we know it's a potentially highly contagious um, disease that affects birds. And we know that this is a particular danger really to, from, from our point of view, from a human point of view, to poultry farmers. And particularly in the run-up to Christmas when there's lots of turkeys in relatively small spaces, there's mm -hmm. an issue with uh, potential issues for those those members of our society. For our birds on site, um, you know, we're obviously having to take measures to make sure that, you know, contact is reduced between those wild birds and um, and, and our birds. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's particularly scary for us when, I think it was just last week, there was a, a white-tailed sea eagle that had been found and had avian influenza oh, no. so you know when we hear about other it's very often water birds or wading birds mm. you know, they seem to congregate in greater numbers and it kind of you know the, the water helps it along a bit i think but um yeah when it's a species that you kind of you know and love mm. it's um it's even even scarier but um i think at the moment the the main advice is to try and keep you know things like water under cover so that you know any droppings from wild birds is not going into the space where your birds drink from so if you've got chickens at home things like that that can be really helpful um and just kind of keeping everything clean and i've got bird feeders in the garden and they're going through much more rigorous cleans now just to try and stop the transmission between birds coming to the the feeder so just like hot soapy water every you know i think at the moment it's like once a week having a bit of a a deep clean and mm -hmm. then heading back out there with with fresh food um 
but you know that's a it's an ongoing thing and it seems to seems to be uh, an issue that is going to stick with us for for a long time yet and and each year certainly in my memory it seems to get longer each year that the season of bird flu sticks around for really um so it used to be very much during the the colder months of 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 the year and it seems those kind of shoulder months it seems to be bleeding into those and restrictions for us are coming into play you know much earlier on so you know if people were to come and visit us i guess the only real differences would be the ones that we've we've discussed there so taking water under cover sometimes we've got foot baths to go in and out of birds aviaries and things like that just to keep it as um as uh, as clean as possible yeah um and you know i think everybody can play their part to do that if they've got they've got birds of their own mm. yeah I, I feel like a lot of the public as well would probably be um, almost surprised to hear bird flu is still such a, or, or will always be, I suppose, an annual thing mm. because there's obviously that massive bird flu scare a couple of years ago. And I think people yeah. sort, of, sort of felt it die down and then forgot it was still always going to be be with us. But thank you as well for giving us those tips on how people can, mm. can uh, take some steps themselves. Mm. On that theme, what can our individuals, our individuals. what can our listeners do? <laughs> As as individuals, <laughs> our, our individuals, they are ours. We claim ownership. Yes. Yeah, this is a cult. <laughs> we own you. Um, what what can people do to to support Birds of Prey in the UK? Hmm. I think what's nice is that the some of the biggest things that you can do to support Birds of Prey are the same things that you can do to support wildlife in general. So the the biggest thing is, you know bits of your garden leaving them to go wild that's going to help insect populations that's going to help you know small mammal populations and if we can keep small mammal populations up again especially barn owls tawny owls kestrels those species rely on those populations and so you know jobs are good and if you've managed to 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 keep the population up high in your local area um you know, certainly I would say using things like rodenticides, you know, really think long and hard about whether that's a necessary precaution to take because, you know, we know that rodenticides have a direct impact on on birds of prey. When they feed on um, rodents that have got a touch of poison in them, then that has a knock-on impact to bird of prey populations too. Um, yeah, and I guess, as I said before, just just kind of getting involved in the conversation, going out and and watching birds of prey and and getting as much of a, a love for them as possible because you know you do start to notice things going wrong with populations of animals that you're you're watching very very regularly because you know you're you're seeing it happen right before your very eyes um and of course i would say you know organizations much like ourselves we do you know a huge amount of work in conservation and research and and uh, and rehabilitation as well for birds of prey so you know if you if you want to support places like us, it obviously goes a long way to to helping our our native species and those that we work with overseas. So, yeah, even just like people coming to visit us, that's our biggest way that people can you know support our work is come and have a nice day out. So it's couldn't be couldn't be more simple, really. Well, Great. sign me up for Thank that. Thank you so I, much. I think you're probably not too far away from me. So um, yeah, you must year, come. You I'm must come. Actually, genuinely going to pop along. Um, yeah, do. I'll, I'll let you know. Um, now you've told us that you need to dash off in a minute to go and fly I a do. bird which is yes. one of the coolest excuses to get out of yeah. the podcast. So, but before you do, Tom, can you tell everybody where they can find more from you, more from HawkCon and more from Nature's a Hoot? Because I'm, I'm quite sure that there's we've, we've whetted the appetite of birds of prey lovers everywhere. Yes. Um, so 
like everything else, we're all over social media. So you can just go at Hawk Conservancy on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, lots of information on our website as well. Um, so yeah, just search Hawk Conservancy on Google is probably the best way. Hawk Conservancy Trust on Google is the best way to do it. <laughs> Great. We'll, um, we'll pop some links in the episode description as well, actually, so people can yes. tip tap on over. Yeah, and Nature's a Hoot as well is, um, yeah, we started that last year and uh, we've hopefully got a new episode coming out in, in January, ready to kickstart the new year. And we just really focus on all things wildlife. I mean, obviously, we're all about birds of prey, but we understand that birds of prey live in a, a wider world. Um, and so having an understanding of the greater ecosystems around them is, is so important. So, yeah, just chats all about general wildlife and animals and, yeah, a bit of fun stuff here and there. It's fantastic. I, I would wholeheartedly recommend people top on over. It's, it's really lovely. Oh, thank you. And uh, if you, you can get more from us as well, if you fancy a little bit more for what it's earth, can't you? We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Um, all the usual. All, all the usuals. And all you can drop us usual. an email as well. We genuinely really enjoyed getting your emails um, for yeah. earthpod at gmail.com. And like, go and leave us a nice review as well. That would Please. That would be great. Pop, pop one over do. as our Christmas present. <laughs> go <laughs> and leave us a nice little five star uh apple podcast review yeah and the only thing left to say is uh of course as ever everything we've uh said and sang about and uh romanticized this podcast uh they're all our own thoughts um, and opinions nothing to do with our respective employers so other than that that's all from uh emma and myself and also from tom tom thank you again for joining us thank you very much for having me thank you bye have a wonderful christmas everyone yeah, oh, yeah. Merry, Christmas. merry christmas merry christmas that old thing bye, bye.